Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 231, a JCC for JOCs. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rothberg. And today we begin a series looking at a number of organizations that are being created by and for Jews of color, as well as a number of other associated topics. Our guest today, Yitz Jordan, is best known as the hip-hop artist Why Love. He first came to prominence in 2005, being known as an African-American Orthodox hip-hop artist. You might know his 2008 album, This Is Babylon. And now he is the co-founder, CEO, and chief product officer of a new enterprise called Tribe Herald Media. It's an organization devoted to creating a space, a physical space, for Jews of color, and also a platform for media content, innovative experiences, and products that hope to introduce the world to the Jewish community in all of its diversity on a grander scale. Tribe Herald Media is the first of its kind multicultural digital media platform with co-working and event spaces. As they say, it intends to be more responsive to the specific needs and aesthetic of modern Jews of color and help unite a global community. We're really excited to learn more about this project and everything that's led to it. So Yitz Jordan, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you. Thank you for having me. It's an awesome place to be. Thank you. Well, I first heard about you probably, it must have been a decade, a decade and a half ago, and uh, I was actually a Hillel director in those days, and I remember my staff being all excited about, you know, what at that time was kind of this idea, right, of a black Orthodox hip-hop artist, and, you know, that was where you kind of rose to prominence back then. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the story of how you became Y-Love and also what you've been doing over the last decade or so. Let's see. I started off Ramin when I was in Yeshiva, in Orsameach Yeshiva in Jerusalem. And that started off as just a way for me and my study partner, Machavrusa, to learn better. Um, he and I, we used hip hop as a way to learn Talmud back and forth, learn Torah back and forth. We turned that and parlayed that into, after coming back from Yeshiva in 2000 or oh, 2001, we turned that into going into an open mic night in Tribeca one night randomly just to see if we could fill up 15 minutes of time. And we ended up rocking the mic for two hours and we became resident every Thursday night at that bar, the Orange Bear in Tribeca. And then from there, it just kind of caught on. Came out with my first mixtape, 2005, then my first all acapella album for the period between Passover and Shavuot, the where people don't listen to no instruments. So came out with an acapella album with a beatboxer in 2007, then album in 2009, This Is Babylon. My single Change went on YouTube then in 2009. Would come out the closet in 2012 with my song Focus on the Flare. Would come out with my song Famous in 2013. But since then, I've kind of gone away from the studio and just done the occasional performance while I've been concentrating on media. And so tell us a little bit about your current project, Tribe Herald Media, because I think it's fascinating what you're trying to create, and and I think it'll open up a lot of avenues for our conversation. 
Initially, Tribe Herald started off as a conversation between myself and Manish Tana, the author, uh, Chase Rishon. Past guest of ours. We'll link to his episode. Yeah. yeah. He and I um, had a conversation in November, around November the 1st, because I had just been celebrating 30 days without alcohol. Um, and we co- had a conversation that there's no, there was no place that Jews of color could go to find out what each other were doing. If JMN, the Jewish Multiracial Network, was having an event, and then Bechol Lashon, the other organization for Jewish diversity, was having an event, no one knew about the two events. Only the people in one organization knew about one, and the other one knew about the other. And we said that there needed to be some type of a central repository that all Jews of color can go to, to find out just what we're doing and what's going on in the community. And while we were discussing this, the anti-Semitic attacks started happening in Muncie and in Jersey City. And, and the perpetrators of too many of these attacks were people of color. And who gets caught in the middle when there's conflicts between Jewish communities and communities of color is Jews of color. So you had people saying things like, I'm totally done with the Jewish community now. People on Hasbara mode, um, explanation mode 24-7, trying to explain the Black point of view to uh, to non-Black Jews, and then you had people who were biracial where the fight is going on in their family, where Uncle X and Aunt Y are fighting over the Thanksgiving table. And this just made us realize that there's a need that all Jews of color need a safe space to go to. There needs to be a place where we can address our concerns and speak about what we're going through. People who are going through trauma need counseling. People who are turning to addiction need 12-step programs. People who are going through issues need support groups. And so we decided that maybe it would be more of a pressing issue to create the first Jewish community center targeted towards Jews of color. We started working towards that and collecting money and were in the middle of speaking to a real estate agent And then Corona happened. So that kind of put any plan for any type of a physical space on the back burner until at least next year. So in the meantime, we kind of concentrated on our original idea was that there should be some place, some type of a media outlet for Jews of color to go to, to know not only that they're not alone, but that there are vibrant things going on in the community run by Jews of color. And if you want to be a part of it, you have to know about it. So we decided to create Tribe Herald. It started off as just a newsletter, like we initially thought. Then two, three contributors turned into five, 10 contributors, turned into 20 contributors, 25, 30, 35 contributors. And it was like, okay, to put out a newsletter is not enough. We need a site. We need a full media company that is targeted towards us and our allies and friends. And that's how Tribe Herald would come into existence. Both the Jewish Community Center idea and the media outlet idea, I feel like could be their own uh, full conversation. So we're going to do our best to interweave them and uh, and approach both of them. I'd love to start looking more at, at the Community Center idea because I want to name something that I heard from some folks when this was going on. By the way, I, I deeply hope that this comes to fruition as soon as possible when it's safe, COVID. Like, um, I... I can't wait to see what this will mean for Jews of color and also for Jews generally to for this kind of resource to exist and for the world generally. But um, I think a lot of Jewish institutions that center white Jews, which is the vast majority of Jewish institutions, I think 
some people have this impulse that like, why would we need a space specifically for Jews of color? Like, why shouldn't the project be, um, you know, one of the big words is inclusion. Like, why, why wouldn't the project just be inclusion work in existing institutions that have historically centered white Jews? Like, and, and I think there's people who really feel this uncertainty around a project that would center specifically Jews of color and that would, that would be a space for, like you said, for folks in that community or set of, of overlapping communities to learn from one another, to grow together. Um, and I think there's some people that are a little squeamish out there and maybe some of them are listening, but I, but I really want to push back on those and I want to open up to you to push back on those. What is specifically necessary about having a space like this? Why is it important to have that and not just improve the spaces that have historically centered white Jews, which is also work we need to be doing. But like, why this project specifically? Let's be brutally honest. We're not even just talking about white Jews. Jewish community centers and Jewish communal institutions have traditionally centered Ashkenazi Jews who have lineage coming from Eastern Europe. There's all your Kugels. There's all your (laughs) Cholin. There's all of your Klezma music. There's all of that. So right there, there's already a very specific target demographic when we talk about Jewish communal institutions traditionally. Up until decades ago, that was just it. Brooklyn would give us the Sephardic Community Center. There would be a Bukhari and JCC in Queens. These organizations had to exist because of that original targeting that people who were not Ashkenazi and didn't have lineage coming from Eastern Europe weren't included in traditional Jewish communal institutions. This is just another offshoot of that. Jewish communal institutions are created and basically targeting and catering towards Ashkenazi Jews. As the community grows more diverse, that's just not going to be enough for the Jewish community in 2100, let's say. So what we're doing is creating a space not just for Jews of color, but centered around Jews of color. For Jews of color, our allies, friends, loved ones, and supporters. And we say that if someone doesn't fit into one of those four categories, then they're part of the problem. A place that someone can get kosher mafongo or can get uh, kosher soul food or can speak about Black Lives Matter and not be targeted by criticism or can speak about issues that affect their family and not be questioned as to how it's Jewish. This is just supposed to be a place built on inclusion and on diversity in a way that just hasn't been done before. I'm really excited by the phrasing you just brought up about um, not not that I like this phrasing, but that it opens up a good conversation about like the question of how is it Jewish? And for me, that actually ties into a thread that I spend a lot of time thinking about, but that we haven't talked so much about on the podcast, which is um, and I promise this will relate um, this will relate to what we've been talking about. But Jewish music, and you mentioned how like ah spaces klezmer music. That's sort of the uh, I've listened to so many podcasts or watched so many videos where like the soundtrack you play in the background to introduce that something Jewish is about to happen is the clarinet going. It's 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 the klezmer sound. Like that's how you say ah Jewish now, and it's so reductionist and it so eliminates the rich diversity of what Jewish music is um, historically for sure, but even uh, and especially contemporarily. And so I kind of wanted to ask you as somebody who is made such a name in the universe of hip-hop, what damage are we doing when we play that game of how is it Jewish and we then sort of come to the implicit conclusion that like, oh, how could hip-hop be Jewish? How could 
X, Y, or Z genre of contemporary music that wasn't in Eastern Europe be authentically Jewish? Like, how should we be approaching those conversations? And how might that link to um, the, the other points you're making about the need for institutions centering Jews of color? This all ties back into that concept of being Ashkenormative, that Ashkenazi traditions and cultural institutions define that which is Jewish. So, like you said, the klezmer music introducing the Jewish segment. Uh, if we're going to talk about Jewish food, we're going to be talking about kugel. We're going to be talking about other things that came from Eastern Europe. Hip hop, I think, was initially seen as so other because it had no European ancestry. This was something that, unlike, I'd say, the ubiquitous Jewish hippie with the jam band, this was something that was born out of a totally different environment. This was something that was born out of urban culture. And uh, it was seen as just the ultimate in other when I started doing hip hop 20 years ago. So it's a, just another symptom of that centering Eastern European and European in general paradigms that could make it be seen as such an other. The reality is, you know, my lyrics were in Hebrew, my lyrics were in Aramaic, I'm rhyming stuff that comes straight out of the Talmud, but it wasn't seen as Jewish unless it had some of these elements, trumpets, clarinets, little boys singing, like in the Orthodox world. I think that the Jewish community doesn't do itself any favors by trying to restrict creativity and trying to tell people that in order to make something authentically Jewish, that it has to sound like the top 10 pop hits of 1804. But <laughs> um, there's nothing that spurs creativity as much as being told no. So when we were told not to make hip hop in yeshiva back in the day, I mean, of course, I would come out with a mixtape. When people are told that their type of creativity is trafe, they're going to redouble their efforts to make it kosher. This attempted exclusion is only going to be self-defeating. And it only was self-defeating when it came to hip hop, and it's only going to be self-defeating in the future when it comes to any other type of contemporary music. I'm kind of almost imagining like when you talk about the Jewish community having this or that problem. Let's let's say right now the Ashkenormativity, just for listeners who don't know, you know, that's the idea, right, that it's built around the experience of Ashkenazi Jews from Eastern Europe. And you could say, okay, well, we're not Ashkenazi, so what are we supposed to do? Option one is to try to, like, get inside and try to change those institutions, right? Option two is I, I'm thinking about it as something like a magnet, like creating a really powerful magnet somewhere on the outside. And then you you actually attract that formerly Ashkenormative, you know, world, you attract it towards that magnet so that ultimately it's it's circling around a different a different center. And that's what Shemspeed Records did. That's what right. Matsis Yahoo did to a certain extent. That's what Nisim is doing. Musically, right, and and then and then when we're talking about, I don't know if this is the best example, but you know, if we're talking about Hamilton just came out on Disney Plus, you know, the idea that that now Broadway is is pulled in the direction of hip hop, right? Which putting aside anything Jewish, right? Thirty years ago, you never would have imagined that, or maybe a few people imagined it. What I'm seeing you talking about in terms of Tribe Herald Media or the or the Jewish Community Center is a version of that outside of the world of music, right? It's saying. Um, and I'd like to I'd like to sort of get inside of that a little bit 
both in, ter- in terms of what it could be and also I guess the only thing that I worry about is letting those Ashkenormative institutions off the hook too much by saying, all right, we're 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 done with you guys. We're going over here and we're creating this new thing. And in a way that that takes off some of the pressure from them to do better. And and I'm wondering how we kind of manage both. So first, I'm, I'm actually more interested in the vision for, you know, what is the version, the non-musical version, the, the version of, of really creating a rich set of Jewish experiences in, like you say, a space that is for Jews of color and allies and loved ones. And I can't remember the whole list that you Friends said. And supporters. <laughs> Friends and supporters. And, and what might that look like? What's the dream? You know, but then also this question of like, and in the meantime, what claims should be made upon those Ashkenormative institutions, you know, that if all the fun is moving outside of them, we still don't want them to just be kind of, you know, doing their same old racism, right? Well, not necessarily racism, just exclusion. Um, And I can't fault the forward, for instance, for being Ashkenormative. They're a brand that still publishes in Yiddish. They're they're running census ads telling people to uh, fill out their census forms in Yiddish. I'm not going to sit there and tell them that they don't have enough black representation. And don't get me wrong, there are people who, there are organizations uh, for Jews of color who are trying to work within the system. As for us, we wanted to, we envisioned a place where, like I said, Jews of color were centered. So there's not a question of, oh, you're here for the diversity group, second floor on the left. You're here for the thing for Jews of color. Oh, that meets on Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. The rest of the time is for Ashkenazim. We wanted to have a place where diversity was a given, where there was no question of, do you belong here or how are you Jewish? That ultra offensive question that, yes, you can find your kosher lo mein and your kosher ramen noodles and your kosher mofongo, like I keep bringing it up because I'm kind of hungry now, and half Puerto Rican. <laughs> you know, the, this idea that you can bring your whole self and not feel marginalized and not feel like there's some Ashkenazi gatekeeper giving you access to the Jewish community where you just are welcome and this is your place. When it comes to programming, it's not like we're reinventing the wheel. There's still going to be classes. There's still going to be workshops. There's still going to be support groups and uh, places for people to talk, Hebrew classes, whatever. We don't want to really infringe too much on Jewish learning because there's already the Jews of Color Torah Academy. But Mm -hmm. we want to be there more as a social entity, just like any other JCC is. I mean, when you think about Jewish history and you think about how Judaism has been in a particular land and the food changed or, you know, has been in a different land and took some of the practices from that land and turned them into Jewish. I always laugh about how Jews shouldn't be so concerned about a Christmas tree. Like the real Jewish thing to do would be to come up with a story about how the Maccabees planted a tree outside the temple when they liberated <laughs> it and then it would be no problem. So it's right. like, what would what would be the version of, of where Judaism would go if Jews of color were sort of fully empowered? Well, I was going to say, what would you, what would Jews of color do differently if this place existed? Show up. That's number one. <laughs> um, there's so many people who say that they've never met a Jew of color before or, or I, in my synagogue, there are no Jews of color because they're not going. Mm-hmm. That's why. So that's the number one thing I'd like to see happen differently is showing up. And as far as the Jewish community is concerned, there's a lot of marginalization that happens with Jews of color. The question of, you know, how are you Jewish? You must have converted. Why are you here in some synagogues? 
and especially now with these calls of increase for increased security at synagogues. So now you have people who are literally being told that they don't belong somewhere. So this would provide an alternative to that. And also the idea of having a Jew of color owned media outlet means that there is recourse now for Jews of color when racist jokes are printed in Jewish publications or racist things are being said by a rabbi. There is someone out there who is going to come with a camera and a recorder and potentially a lawyer and all of these things to stand up for you, whereas that doesn't exist really right now. Yeah, so I I want to carry forward on the media outlet point, and I, I have a few questions. One is, so we talk a lot about digital Judaism on this show as a digital Jewish project that exists in the dot-coms and dot-orgs of the world much more than the avenues in the streets of the world. Right, same. And, and so I, my question, I'll expand on this, but my question will roughly be like, in what ways potentially is a media outlet like Tribe Herald itself a kind of community center? Now, acknowledging that we also should have the physical space that is a Jewish community center cent- that is centering on Jews of color and their loved ones, supporters, friends, and allies. Nice. Um, <laughs> we should absolutely have that. But um, if this were to continue to grow, may it be so, I think there's a way in which in and of itself, a digital kind of gathering space or a digital publication like this could serve as, if not a community center, at least like a nucleus or a, a hub of Jews of color, no matter where they are. So any community center that is in a particular zip code somewhere is going to be present for the people within close proximity to that zip code or people that are visiting. A website, a, a media outlet like Tribe Herald is open to anybody with internet access. So I guess my question is like, how could this media outlet, even before you get the wheels in motion to get the JCC fully going, how could this already start to play some of the roles you're describing in terms of providing that space for Jews of color to connect with one another, to learn from one another, to see themselves reflected? This is all a yes and proposition. Like, yes, we are creating the community online We've started off from zero to 3,400 on Facebook in just a couple months. And um, there's definitely the community online forming. Um, we haven't really launched Twitter and YouTube as much yet as we've done Facebook, but there's also that praise God for social media. Now I'm going to preface this by saying all of this, this idea of creating a space that's a dedicated space in a zip code is all Corona willing. Assuming that Corona allows this to happen, the contingency plan is that assuming that Corona, we have a second wave and that we'll never go back to a regular normal, um, we're going to be having pop-up events. And these pop-up events will be the JCC type of experience just over the course of a week. And that gives us the ability to take those pop-ups around. We started off in New York, and um, that's our biggest market so far. But Toronto really shocked us at how much of a market for Jews of color there was there. Montreal also, Charlotte, North Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina, like places that were we buying real estate, we wouldn't necessarily have looked at. But there are places that there's definitely a need there. 
Native American Jewish population in Alabama, places where there should be something for Jews of color, but there might not be the sustainability. So we wanted to create pop-up events that we can have travel around. Lex and I were talking about a few weeks ago, the idea that maybe the Jewish community would get a little bit more uh, concerned about COVID or coronavirus if we talked about it as an anti-Semite, you know, that that COVID is like a big anti-Semite because it's killing a lot of Jews, you know, and then maybe they'd get they'd get a, a little bit more, you know, focused on wearing masks. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking about it, actually, in the sense that, like, when we think about the Internet as like, what have Jews done in the past when there's been a lot of anti-Semites around? They've gone to a different place. And I'm kind of interested in this idea of the the Internet as this new place that the Jews are migrating to. It's something that we've talked about a bunch, uh, you know, for a while. And and what what's what's interesting is the possibility that if a lot of Jews of color hop on that boat early on, you know, then there's a founder's effect, you know, where the new community that's established is actually a lot you know, actually gets pushed in the direction of some kind of people that were maybe marginal in in the old land, you know, because they got here first. That happened with Jewish life in America in, in, in certain ways. So it's actually kind of fascinating to me to imagine what maybe the Jewish digital landscape would look like if Jews of color really are there in a big way early on. Your mouth to God's ears. But um, we, as we see now on Facebook, for instance, there's a lot of groups for Jews of color. And so the question has been brought up in a couple of groups. What about white Jews uh, and Jews not of color who want to join this group? There's still that feeling of wanting to have our own space. And there's still that feeling of I'm marginalized over there. So therefore, out of self-preservation, let me create this space over here. And that's still happening online. So we're still at a place where there needs to be that feeling of safe space before we can get to overall inclusion and overall integration, for lack of a better word. There's a lot of people who, even online, still don't feel that they can go to certain dot-coms. And we're not talking about a small amount of people, one in five Jews, according to the Jews of Color Field Building Initiative, are Jews of Color, according to the Jews of Color Field Building Initiative. So we're talking about a large swath of the American Jewish community who doesn't feel comfortable in American Jewish institutions on or offline. So yeah, we might see that founders effect, but it's still a ways off. The question that I always ask is like, what percentage of Jews actually do feel comfortable in the existing landscape of, of Judaism? I actually think it's a small minority, but the people who feel excluded all feel excluded for different reasons. You know, it's like the beginning of Anna Karenina, where they say like all happy families are the same, but all unhappy families are differently unhappy. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wonder like what it would look like to, and I don't, I have no idea how to really build this other than to just build human relationships and networks, right? But to say like, can all of us who feel marginalized for this reason or that reason get together? Tribe Herald is not just, uh, you know, for Jews of color. We're also launching Tribe Q for LGBTQ Jews. And uh, we have Tribe Herald Sapphire for Jewish women. And uh, that's a series of webinars and other content that's being currently led by Manish Dana's wife, uh, Julianne. So there are lots of people who are marginalized and who don't feel welcomed in uh, Jewish communal institutions. I wish Trap Herald could cater to all of them, but uh, there's 
you know, so many reasons. And like you said, it's a small minority of people who actually do feel welcomed in all the Jew Jewish communal institutions. We're only talking about issues of, you know, race and orientation. There's a whole separate issue of class. There's whole separate issues of family background. There's whole other issues that keep people feeling excluded from the Jewish community. I wish we could handle all of them. I wish we could tackle all of these problems, but um, it's very cool that Gen X and millennial Jews, it seemed like got fed up all at once <laughs> and decided to create all types of organizations. But I feel that now over the course of the years, these have kind of gotten absorbed into the Jewish mainstream. Mm -hmm. And now there's a new group of disaffected people. Whereas mm -hmm. 20 years ago, it was a larger group. Now there's a smaller group of disaffected people. Hopefully this group will continue to shrink in size. And then we can eventually get to the point that everybody feels comfortable somewhere. I keep on coming back to music and um, I, I play music. So I think that's part of why, but I, I feel like I'm close, but not quite getting... It feels like there's a way in which how we are and are not relating to music Jewishly reflects a huge, enormous body of our institutional issues. And I think that all of the things we're talking about, about how the majority of, um, of American Jews actually might not be comfortable. It's actually a minority who might be comfortable. I feel like we could say similarly, like, most music that American Jews are interested in has been like categorized or reified as not being Jewish, even when it's Jews creating it. I mean, I often call, I jokingly, but not fully jokingly, will talk about Pink, the artist, as one of my Rebbies. And she's Jewish. She doesn't claim to be a rabbi, but like I, I see she is, she has affected me in a variety of ways. Um, and so I, I just keep coming back to that. And so my question that I have is like, you clearly have a deep relationship to music. You've lived it and embodied it for multiple decades at this point. What touches you deeply when you are making music, when you are performing music, that reflects something deeper maybe about humanity and potentially like what could we learn from that? Because I feel like whatever that is, we're missing it in a lot of Jewish spaces. Like I don't walk into a lot of Jewish spaces of any kind and necessarily leave with the same aura in me that I walk out of an amazing concert with. So my question is like, what's happening when we're flexing those musical muscles of ours or engaging our musical souls that we might be able to, to try and apply to Jewish stuff? Music unlocks the heart. It unlocks the mind. You can find yourself singing a tune to something that you would never have otherwise memorized. Um, if I go up to somebody and say like, say Psalm 126, and they're like, what? And I'm like, share hamalos. And everybody <laughs> understands, the, knows the tune from Grace After Meals. So music makes something more accessible. Um, to me, music is all about the words. You know, hip hop is all about lyrics. I'm all about lyrics when I listen to music. It's one of the reasons I really don't like classical music. I'm always waiting for something to start. I'm <laughs> waiting for the music. So that idea that ability that music has to let words into the innermost parts of one's mind and soul is there any other thing that such a text-based religion would want to have on its side um yemenite jews memorize entire books of the scripture using tunes um the torah is read with a tune 
music is the way to get words from on a page into a mind and into a heart. So that idea of taking music and using it for Jewish purposes, I feel like everyone needs to be on this. To the point that I don't understand why more Jewish institutions, when I was learning in Osimeach, I was learning as part of the Jewish Learning Institute, I would help other newcomers to get used to yeshiva, to help them learn some basic Torah concepts and things like that. My first question always with anybody who was new to yeshiva is what kind of music do you like? (laughs) Because that's going to tell me how to communicate with them. And I think that that type of musical market research should be done by every Jewish institution. If you've got a whole group of hip hop heads in a room and you're not going to bring out a beat, you're totally doing yourself a disservice and your your message isn't going to get over as well. I know that you want to talk about and we want to talk about a little bit to to understand what's your perspective on where, let's say, America is right now. And and in particular, where Jews of all of all racial backgrounds. I mean, like, how would you want white Jews to be thinking about this? How would you want Jews of color to be thinking about where we are today in in America? And I guess my question is fundamentally, like, does Judaism fit into that in some way? Or are they two different phenomena that we should be thinking about separately? Totally two different phenomena. And especially, I would like, en masse, I would love for the concept of white Jew to be a relic of the past. A Ashkenazi Jew has the choice of whether or not they want to identify as white. And when one identifies as white, that means people of color become other. And when Mm -hmm. one identifies as white, that means one can identify with whiteness and the racial hierarchy that it sets atop. Um, Identifying with Jewishness primarily means that one identifies with that international pan-racial multi-ethnic group of people called Jews that have existed for thousands of years. Identifying as white means that one identifies with a few hundred year old definition that was created to exclude people of color. So this idea of whiteness writ large is what we see in America today. The idea that statues have to stand up because they represent our quote-unquote collective history. Really, they represent the genocide of Native Americans or the enslavement of African people, but it's our collective history. Why? Because the us is white America, and it's our history, meaning white American history, that has to be preserved. So that gives rise to Black Lives Matter, that idea that, no, I do have value, like James Baldwin would say, I am a man, that idea that we are human beings too. I would love to see Jews en masse reject whiteness and reject that which comes with it. But white privilege is a hell of a drug. It's easier to just go with the flow and to not fight all the time. But when that happens, then one gets thrown into cognitive dissonance when anti-Semitism rears its head because it's like, what do you mean? I'm white. How could this be happening to me? Why am I being discriminated against? Um, I would love to see more solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. I feel like there's this litany of stances on Israel that people are supposed to have to be quote unquote, a good organization. And I'd like to see those concerns separated from the concerns that are happening in America. I'd like to see this awakening of 
everyone's concerns mattering extend to the Jewish community. Being white passing means you benefit from white privilege. That's it. It um, trying to deny that is trying to deny reality. Like the same things that of uh, that affect a Trayvon Martin aren't going to affect your kids. It's the rejection of that that requires an active rejection of saying, like, you know, I understand that you're treating me like this because you don't consider me a threat because I'm white. Um, you should treat this guy the same way. We're arcing towards the close of this episode, and holy, 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 we have covered some really important <laughs> ground. But um, I, I wanna, I wanna broach one more topic um, because you you brought up an important figure earlier. Um, not that all this stuff boils down to numbers and quantities, but you brought up the the one in five stat, the twenty percent stat that, according to the Jews of Color Field Building Initiative, one in five, twenty percent of American Jews are Jews of color. Um, and there's recently been some really pernicious discourse around the subject of counting Jews of color. There was an article published in multiple Jewish publications that basically made the argument with without all that much data and in the face of much contradictory data that the oh actually they're claiming that the number of Jews of color is way smaller than that twenty percent figure, way smaller than people seem to claim, and um. It's not just an academic debate. It ties into huge questions about, oh, well, if a group is some tiny minority, somehow we wouldn't need to care about their concerns as much. And we wouldn't need to support things like a Jewish community center centering their, their beings as much. We would, like, it's, it's not just an academic debate. And so I, I wanted to hear from you, how should we understand that, that fact of one in five Jews of color, especially given what you said before about how so many people haven't met a Jew of color, or maybe they've only met a few, how can we recognize that it's not that they don't exist, it's that for all the reasons you've identified, they've been made to feel unwelcome in many existing spaces? Oh, exactly. Um, made to feel unwelcome, made to feel that their concerns aren't really Jewish concerns. And so if that's how you're made to feel at your shul or at your JCC, why show up? And then, of course, the people who come to that shul don't meet Jews of color after that point. Um, so Dr. Ira Sheskin, who, um, who created the new study that was run in e-Jewish philanthropy that said uh, after his examination of the data that only 6% of Jews were Jews of color. He said that line, that 6% of Jews were Jews of color, but when we pressed him about it on an interview, which is up on YouTube, he was only talking about black Jews, specifically black non-Hispanic Jews, specifically black non-Hispanic non-biracial Jews. So if that's the case, then, you know, your 6% to 9% number, and the 9% was after he was pressed to say that maybe it's on the other side of the margin of error. But if that's your definition of Jews of color, then yeah, I, you're probably right. Um, the 20% number includes biracial Jews, includes Latino Jews, includes Asian and indigenous Jews. But if all you're talking about is just black non-Hispanic Jews, then fine you're probably going to come up with a number, something like that. And he conflates that with Jews of color, even to the point that he says in an interview that um, if we're talking about Jews of color, there's just not there. But if we're talking about Hispanic Jews, I can find you plenty in Florida. Thinking that Latino people aren't people of color. So right there, that just goes to show that these numbers that these people come up with 
are based on a very different definition of person of color than the rest of us are dealing with. And this idea that there's only such a small number, I don't know if it's there just to make people feel that our concerns are more justified and ignoring, but there's also that idea of making racists feel safe. They're not taking over. There's only, there's not even 10%. There's only 6% of them. I don't have to worry about diversity. I don't have to worry about including anybody. This is only a small group of people that I'll probably never meet in my life. And then hearing one in five makes them realize like, oh, these are people that I have to start paying attention to. But the smaller the number, the more marginalized the number, the easier some racist can sleep at night thinking that they're never going to have to deal with a Jew of color. This number bringing into the light and bringing into the equation people who are biracial, people who you know, are of all different non-white ethnicities tend to make people feel uncomfortable and make them feel like you know, maybe I should be more inclusive and people don't like to feel uncomfortable. Yeah, so that's um, that's the note we're going to close on. We're out of time, but um, I think it's important for us to end on a little bit of a challenging note and confront the discomfort that so many of us have felt. And uh, thank you to you for helping us consider how we can overcome that discomfort and how we can build a better world together. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks so much to all of you out there listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to close out this conversation by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And you can do that in a variety of ways. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can check out our website, JudaismUnbound.com or also JewishLive.org. And last but not least, you can hit us up via email at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. We also want to encourage you to check out Tribe Herald, the new incredible media company that Yitch Jordan talked about today, and you can visit their site at tribeherald.com. The last request we'd like to make is that we really deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you can send our way, which you can do via judaismunbound.com slash donate or jewishlive.org slash donate. You can also support Tribe Herald at their website. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.